I'm every day waking up saying, have I fallen into that trap? Have our teams fallen into that trap? Are we just going based on proxies? Do we know the ground truth? Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Shez Partovi, the chief strategy officer at Philips, a health technology company. He'll share how his first career in medicine can help any leader innovate and solve big problems. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Wanting to come from beliefs, seeking questions is in my opinion, is the prerequisite to innovation and strategy, actually, because they're twins in a way. Today, Shez Partovi works in technology, helping his teams build innovations that take better care of patients. But he got his start as a physician, practicing for nearly a decade until he realized how technology could help him scale his efforts and help more people. Still, those early days on the hospital floor were formative, especially when it comes to problem solving, and they help him make better decisions today. On Meet the Leader, he'll take us through the questions that you should ask yourself to truly push innovation forward, to know if you're working from the right evidence and that you put your focus in the right place, and that you've truly learned enough about the problem that you're looking to solve. He'll get us started with the lesson that helps him even today to make sure that every innovative solution is tackling a real problem. As a medical student, actually I've just started rotating through a hospital. And um, there's a thing in the hospital called tumor board. And tumor board is when all the physicians get together to discuss a particularly difficult case where the answer isn't obvious. And so uh, as a medical student, I'm sitting against the wall, the surgeon, the oncologist, the, all the uh, physicians are sitting discussing this particular woman. And if you've ever been in tumor board, the oncologist will, might approach that says, hey, we should radiate uh, uh, or give chemotherapy. The surgeon says we should cut it out. And each will bring evidence because remember, this case is unknown. It's not a slam dunk. And there was a lot of debate going back and forth. And I remember the head surgeon for the hospital at one point said, okay, what would we do if the patient was lying here on the table? What would we do if her family was sitting here? And as a medical student, I was blown away by the impact of that question. Because what happened is everybody switched from my specialty, and I think we should do this, and here's my evidence, to, well, this patient's actually going to have their daughter's going to get married. And then all kinds of things came out. And the personalization of that story meant that the care became more obvious as to what's the path to take. And what I learned that day was focusing on the patient as a unifying force. And actually, so I, I learned that really in, on the clinical side. And so when I shifted to the technology side, I took that lesson with me and used that focusing on something external to us. Because in technology, the hardware says solve hardware, software says solve software. You know, the designer says here's the best way. But it's a great unifying force to focus on the patient and work backward from his or her needs and to personalize whatever it is you're building. Mm -hmm. So that to me has been an area of change that I've focused on, whether I was in a health system as chief digital officer, whether I was in Amazon at AWS, where I'm now at Philips, it's always starting from the patient journey and working backwards. So, and, and if we, want, we can talk about a specific example in technology that we actually did this, but that's really the change I've focused on and what I've been 
com committing my time to. Let's talk about a particular technology that uh, will really sort of is, uh, surprise people with the impact. What's something that really kind of comes to mind? So we had a real problem. When I was at a health system, I was working as the fourth largest health system in the United States. I was chief digital officer. And the problem we were trying to solve sounds trivial, but bear with me here. Walk with me on this one. So it's about patient online scheduling. Now, of course, today after pandemic, with all the uh, vaccine scheduling, it's become powerful, of course. But this is a few years back where patient online scheduling wasn't necessarily a thing, or at least it wasn't a common thing. It was a thing. And so when we looked at that, it, was, it seemed simple. You know, there's a thing called patient portals. And everyone said, great, let's roll out the patient portal. And we will let patients schedule their visits online. And so the question became, which is, well, Patient portals only work if you've actually been at the hospital and have an account. So what happens to patients that have not yet come in to the clinic or the hospital? They actually don't have accounts. This would be as though, I don't know if you're in the U.S., there's an open table. So it'd be as though you could only book at restaurants you've been to. And that would not be a very useful app. And so the question of how do we allow our patients that have never touched our environment schedule online was a problem that was worth solving because otherwise you're, first of all, excluding a whole lot of patients that have not yet come in. And so we focused on that problem. And actually the way I think of it is we invested in the problem, not the solution. The solution was the portal, at least some suggested, but the problem was all our patients and how would they be able to schedule online? So diving really deep into that problem led to a certain number of technology decisions, which actually meant that we cannot just use the portal. And then as you wind the scope, we had tele video visits as a problem. So we wanted the online scheduling to be applied to that. We had birthing classes, Lamaze classes. So as you looked at it from the patient lens, they had a whole lot of digital services and they'd like to schedule online. So the answer of beginning with the technology of we have a portal, let's just roll that out to saying, what's the actual patient journey and what does he or she need? meant that we had a cascade of effects that meant literally dozens of platforms in this health system, which was 40 hospitals across dozens of states. Everybody had to align to this one story, which is how do I let somebody access a digital service where they've not yet come into a facility yet? And the cascading effect of that actually, if you fast forward, that particular health system did remarkably well during the pandemic. Because we had, before I left that organization, we had actually already built the infrastructure for allowing anybody, whether they touch us or not, to actually schedule and book an appointment, whether it's for birthing classes or whether it was for a preoperative schedule, pre-admission testing is called. So that's an example where we dive deep really into the problem space. And when we started, everybody said, look, it's easy, you just have a bunch of apps, it's okay, a bunch of different username, passwords, you know, checklists of apps on the app. But if you really obsess, and when we were having this discussion, I borrowed from that example when I was a medical student, which is, look, if it's your mother, your son, your brother or sister, what is the experience they want to have? And that was a unifying force. And so using the patient as a way to bring folks together on a common mission and vision has been something that I've been using to solve technology problems. When clinicians are using solve patient care problems all the time. I'm just transplanting that experience to the technology side. We all either know a patient, been a patient, or uh, will soon know a patient. It's an incredible way to bring people together around a particular vision. So I've been using that 
and it's natural for me because just of my clinical background and uh, that example I've used, whether I was in Amazon, AWS, whether I was at Philips, working backward from the patient experience or the clinician experience. I mean, I use them interchangeably. They're not the same persona, but equally physicians and nurses, they deserve the same sort of obsession over their experience. That's the sort of the, the example of using that to drive a technological development um, that required 40 hospitals to collaborate on a single vision that we want to allow patients to be able to access digital services wherever they are, even if they've never been to our facilities yet. You're new at Philips, but given that mindset, what would you like to do? What sort of technology do you think is, is possible? What's, what problems can you be investing in now that you're excited about? When I arrived at Phyllis, one of the things so I borrowed from that concept of patient centricity, there was an innovation transformation program, which was called Innovation 2025. I am a firm believer that words matter. And so one of the leadership asks at Philips is this concept of customer first, which really translates to consumer first, patient first, really it's a grab back term. So one of the first things I did is I said, words matter, and it's not about innovation 2025, which sounds like we can do this later, but we need to change that term to customer first innovation. So the first thing I did is actually said, let's say the right things. We, if we're going to innovate, we need to innovate on behalf of our customers, consumers, and their patients. And so that was an immediate switch that we did. Now, taking that forward, we have in our ambulatory team technology like Biotel. Biotel is a way of monitoring cardiac rhythms at home to make a diagnosis whether a patient has an arrhythmia of some sort or even monitoring in real time to have a trigger that says there's a dangerous arrhythmia happening. And so now comes the same story. Now, so you're talking about giving a patient a device that they have to then, in other words, actually attach and configure. We need to obsess over that experience. I mean, I learned this experience, by the way, from Amazon. Amazon talks about experiences being the, the pivotal part of a flywheel. When you want to create a flywheel to grow a business, you obsess over experiences. I combine that with my personal experience as a medical student, as an intern, as a resident, as a fellow of how the patient journey really brings clinicians together. And here at Philips now, Taking those together, the, the sort of the business scaling experience at Amazon and the passion to really take care of patients from my physician background to Phyllis, where we say, look, whatever we are putting in the hands of patients, whether it's our biotel technology, whether it's our uh, sensors that we give, it has to obsess over the simplicity, beauty, and simplicity for the patient to be able to absorb it, which actually is why we have like 500 designers who all they do is focus on the patient journey and think through how do we make it so that it's the technology is both invisible. That's the story that I'm bringing to Philips is A, words matter, shift your thinking to customer first innovation. We have to innovate on behalf of our customers. We're not coming to innovate for them, but on behalf of them and obsess over the patient experience, obsess over the clinician experience, because that's how you create a flywheel. I not a trained physician, <laughs> but uh, I would imagine that because you're working with many different teams, many people have a role in a hospital and a patient's care. There's lots of people that are involved. And so it's a very collaborative process. And so I would imagine that there's a lot of skills and a lot of understanding of that process that 
ports directly into technology and trying to sort of figure out, you know, how do we solve this problem? Who, you know, who do we talk to, whether it's on the, the, the back end, whether uh -huh. it's on the data end, like, is, is, is my gut correct that that was helpful? Or are there other things that you took from that experience that were really helpful in making that transition? The process to innovate is interesting. So Philips, we have a process called co-creation where, where, as you pointed out, because it's a multidisciplinary team to really innovate uh, on behalf of customer, we actually collaborate together with customers and actually go on site and do this co-creation process, which allows us to deeply understand the, both the clinician journey and the patient journey and to work backwards from that to actually um, figure out what is the best. And in that process, you have uh, people from our health transformation services, which are experts in workflow. We have designers that literally are designing software and hardware. There are our key opinion leaders internally, a research and development team. So we bring everybody on site and work in this co-creation process. So that's that's how Philips, and, and by the way, that ties directly into the mode of thinking, which I was just sharing around being focused on the experience and working working back from that outcome. So that's the co-creation process now, and this is well-known, Amazon Press is well-known. Amazon Press actually called this working backwards, and it's working from the, uh, in that case, the customer and not necessarily the patient because um, there's no, other than Amazon Care, there's no patient involvement, but working backwards from a problem. The challenge that I have seen often in any of these processes, and I categorize them to three E's, that uh, they start with the word letter, letter E. So um, I'm a firm believer in what might be called evidence-based innovation. Now, I borrowed that from evidence-based medicine. So I, you will see me always crossing my clinical and my technology worlds together. So evidence-based innovation really says to me is, listen to the signals. What is the pain point? Focus on those actual signals from whether it's a patient or a clinician and look at the market trends. And you're really starting from the ground truth and then working backwards from that ground truth. So evidence-based innovation. I, and I talk, I talk about the ground truth because, you know, I, I always joke and say the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. So you have to start from the ground truth, the evidence-based. The problem with any innovation process is there are two other E's that you fall into that trap, which is, expert-based innovation, where you bring key opinion leaders into a room and the actual ground truth isn't there, it's a proxy. So you have a Phillips, for example. On staff, you have a cardiologist, ex-cardiologist, and let's just talk to the cardiologist. She knows what we should do. And so there's, that's a trap that one can fall into and which I'm actually actively working to avoid and to make sure that Phillips stays customer-first innovation. So this expert-based innovations, it's comfortable. Hey, Shez, you're, you're a physician. What do you think? And you have to have discipline not to fall in the trap of expert-based innovation. But still not as bad as the last E, which is eminence-based innovation, which is you're an eminent person. I am the vice president. I am the chief innovation and strategy officer. Hear me, hear me. Now, of course, by, by the way, sometimes individuals who are, quote, eminent, really base it based on evidence. They're translating, but let's put that aside because that's just evidence couched as eminence. There, but the trap we do fall into sometimes is this eminence base where you're looking for the highest ranking title in the room or in the organization. You tell us what we should do. What does the customer need? And so what I constantly am making sure we don't do by sort of disconfirming our beliefs is, are we really at the evidence? Are we just leveraging experts or are we falling in the trap of eminence? And it's the eminence one that you precisely deploy the wrong thing. 
Um, and it's the one that is really the ground truth level that you are able to navigate to really an innovation that's, that for a clinician, a physician, nurse, or, or a patient. So those are, we combine at Philips, and this is my role at the heart of it, is to ensure that we are doing customer-first innovation based on ground truth of the pain point of whoever it is we're trying to serve, whether it's a consumer, a health system physician, nurse, or sometimes the patient themselves. That is the challenge that I constantly face. That's the headwind where I work. And I'm every day waking up saying, have I fallen into that trap? Have our teams fallen into that trap? Are we just going based on proxies? Do we know the ground truth? It takes discipline to make sure that you're not falling into maybe expert-based innovation or even eminence-based. Are there questions people can ask themselves uh, to sort of get them back on the on the right track, right? On the road to glory, right? Is there, <laughs> is there something that they can ask themselves to be like, am I not remembering the patient? What would you recommend somebody doing to, for a gut check? So when I came to Phyllis, one of the first questions I asked R&D teams and research teams is, hey, when was the last time you met with a customer? You want no filter between you and the voice of the end user, whether that's the consumer, whether that's a physician, nurse, patient. And so there is no substitute for the voice of the customer. And so I would say that if um, anyone listening, any of your listeners has, has a research or innovation team, and they should just walk in and ask, when was the last time you actually spoke with the intended end user and, and sat with them? Which is partly why Philips does co-creation is because you're actually in the fishbowl with them. And so th there's no question. And there are two dimensions to that voice of the customer. There is the sort of the qualitative and quantitative because you get qualitative, qualitative signals and you really should, in an agile way, try to build towards whatever it is you're innovating on their behalf, use quantitative and analytics to validate your direction. So it isn't just gut and intuition. Hey, I talked to Dr. Jones. She was at that someone's hospital. She said this is the best thing since sliced bread. Great, voice of the customer. But you need to then go to a quantitative level and validate that. So I challenge our own teams at Philips, voice of the customer, qualitative, validated through quantitative as well. And no substitute to that. Yes, we got key opinion leaders. Yes, we have brilliant individuals who've been in the field for a long time and, and who are great voices, eminent voices, but no substitute for the ground truth voice of the customer. Do you think that more innovators, when they're thinking about solving a problem, more people should think about that phrase that you used, invest in the problem, not in the solution, right? You're not uh, worrying, worrying about the, the output so much as you are actually doing something that makes progress, right? Do you think that, that there's a gap to be bridged there? If I told you to finish this sentence, I think you probably could, which is don't bring me problems, bring me- Solutions, yeah. Right, yeah. and I'm not that person. Yeah. That's the, that's the challenge is that we live in a world where we tell people, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. That's probably the most you know, commonly quoted management, you know, like come with solutions, don't bring me problems. Innovation is the opposite. Bring me problems before you set on the solution. Let's invest in the problem. So the process really is diving deep into the problems, whether it's your Kaizen, whether it's the five whys, whatever. And until you completely understand the problem, absolutely not. Uh, moving to solution mode. So it is difficult. You get three people in a room, the first thing you do is go up to a whiteboard and start solutioning. And it takes discipline, real discipline, to disconfirm your beliefs. So, I, I, so, so definitely invest in problems. Another great quote, if you know, if I had an hour, I'd spend 55 minutes on the problem. And those should become your cultural norms. So I, I would say if anyone is, has an innovation team, those are the metrics that you should actually use is how much do you focus on the problem and not the solution. And I would 
willing to wager with any of your listeners that if they do that, invariably the solution will be different than what they first done the first five minutes. Is another question people should ask themselves, have I been surprised by anything? If you haven't been surprised by anything, chances are you haven't learned enough. If you um, haven't changed your mind a lot, then you're probably not you may be on the wrong path as well because it's, it, it, the, the iteration and that comes to the agility. Maybe that's the other dimension to innovation and this idea of focusing on the problem is that you really want to focus on agile iteration and trying things. And if you you're right, if you already know what the outcome is, by the way, you're that's the that's another challenge, right? You should, you should have a, some level of uncertainty because you're really trying to be innovative. I mean, the foundation of innovation is if you already know the answer, then you're really not innovating. I mean. <laughs> So some there's a level of uncertainty that you're comfortable with, that you're going to experiment in an agile way, and that you're going to change your mind. You're right in a way that if you look at it, if your process of innovation is in the first 10 minutes, you have the answer, you got a roadmap, you create three horizons and off you go. Um, you may end up in the third horizon exactly the wrong place. So definitely it is agile, it is iterative, it is learning, and disconfirming your belief is, is those are foundational to disconfirming one's belief changed from your earliest days, even as a medical student or even as a, as a doctor, how have you changed in your mind as a leader? What capabilities have you built on? What things have you left behind? How have you how have you changed as a leader? You know, the uh, probably the most profound experience in medical school for me was from a, from a nurse because um, I had just graduated. So I had an MD next to my name. I was eminent, <laughs> or at least it felt that way. And uh, one of the patients required anticoagulation, and, and I was actually ordering testing for anticoagulation. And um, if the testing isn't done right, the dosing isn't done right. That's really important for those that, that know. And um, on day two in the real world, I was writing orders for a patient. So I wrote the orders and left, back then it was all paper-based and flagged it for the nurse to follow my orders and left the floor. And um, that particular nurse on that patient looked at my order, realized the order was actually wrong. It was not the right test for the patient, and it wouldn't have given the answer. It would have delayed anticoagulation therapy. And so um, she escalated to the chief staff to say a couple of things. One, this physician, quote unquote, having just graduated, needs a little remediation course on proper testing for anticoagulation. And be, you know, let's get the right order for this patient. I've never forgotten that because you said, what has that taught me? that you never stop learning. And that if you walk out of somewhere thinking that you're at a at the point, you know, that sort of the growth mindset that I've achieved my MD status, hear me, hear me, this is my order. And she very eloquently and very quickly on day two of my MD-ness reminded me that the education has just begun. I'm not done medical school. I've begun a lifelong process of learning. And that humble posture of learning, she drove that to me that day. And it took a few weeks for me to, I mean, it was nothing. I mean, obviously she casually got the right test, did everything right. But it was this really quick post-graduation reminder that I need to learn. I need to continue to learn. So building capabilities and learning is one of the things that has been foundational since the second day that I, I graduated medical school. And for me, the reason that was really important is because when, as I went forward in my career, I realized that my passion wasn't, so I was doing angiography. And when you're doing angiography, you know, if you fast forward a few years after that, um, I was seeing about five patients a day. Um, and I was doing brain angiography, cerebral angiography. And, and so I loved that job, that work, and it was very rewarding. But what I wanted to do was to make an impact at scale. And after 10 years of practice, I realized that if I want to impact the lives of hundreds of millions of people, 
well, as much as I love what I'm doing and it gave me great satisfaction, I needed to do something different. Actually, it wasn't a 10 years. It was earlier than 10 years. And so borrowing on that learning, on that moment for me that learning has just begun, I ha- so I, I had to figure out, do I go passion backward, to use the same metaphor, or skill forward? My skill was a physician, but my passion was scaling and making a difference in the world. So I had to figure out, okay, I got to start learning other things. So I started learning computer science. I took other extra courses at night. I started doing things. I did five startup and I had to learn, basically get a ver- real life MBA versus going to MBA school because I was still practicing. I, during the 10 years, I practiced at five startups. One was a spectacular failure, learned a lot. And the other ones you, I, I learned, I was doing product management. I was quote CEO, I was doing marketing. I was, so this constant posture of learning was the only way in which I could get to my goal, which was to deliver care at scale or make impact at scale. So that, is is the heart of everything that I now do is I, you know, if I learn something in a day, it's a good day, which comes to your disconfirming of your beliefs. If you don't ask the disconfirming question, and if you don't encourage the disconfirming question, you're not going to learn anything. And if you're not going to learn anything, you're, you might, your innovation or wherever you're going is going to be uh, misguided. And so this concept of humble posture of learning, wanting to disconfirm your beliefs, seeking questions is in my opinion, is the prerequisite to innovation and strategy, actually, because they are twins in a way. So that's, that's the background that led me to this, to the way that I operate and the way in which my teams operate. Is there a book that you recommend? So my favorite book, I have many favorite books, but this one, because in the context of being a change agent, um, in the context of making people realize that focusing on experiences and centricity made the stick why some ideas flourish and some ideas die. Um, the Heath brothers wrote that book. And Made to Stick is around the power of simple communication because you want ideas to stick. And so as if you are a change agent, which I believe part of my job is, or a big part of my job is to be a change agent and my teams, is knowing how to communicate so things stick is critical. You know, the, the great quote is, the problem with communicating is you think you've done it. And so to overcome that, I, I use the techniques in that book all the time. Made to Stick has got an acronym which maps to a certain sort of approach. So I, I use that concept and I recommend it to all, uh, all the teams to read it because being a change agent means you have to make ideas stick. Right. So that's my favorite book. Uh, I have one last question for you. You made this this big shift. You realized that you wanted to scale change. You wanted to basically scale your passion. If you were going to give advice to uh, young people today who were looking to scale their passions, what's that advice? Young individuals who want to scale their passion, be stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. Because there's there are many paths to achieving your passion. Don't get locked in early on a path that you think is the path, that you stay true to the North Star, but be flexible in the ways, iterate and try different things and experiment, experiment, experiment. That is how you find the path to your passion and you can scale it. That was Shez Partovi. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with editing by Jerry Johansson, Studio Engineering by Juan Turan, and Gareth Nolan Driving Studio Production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>